at a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Monday, December 11th, 2023 edition of Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein, and as always on Mondays, we have Luke Guerrero back with us. How was the weekend, Luke? I know you went, you did a little retail therapy. Did a little retail therapy for my girlfriend, who is a lawyer who was just swamped at work this week, so she needed me to take her out to the outlets, yes. Okay, well, that uh, kind of hits on one of our uh, uh, topics we're going to discuss today. Um, you also got some golf in. I did get some golf. Well, I guess you could call it golf. I don't know if you call what I do playing golf, but I try my mm -hmm. best. Sure, it's better than mine, that's for sure. Well, uh, there's a lot to cover today, not just Luke's weekend, but... What's going on in your life? What is happening in your financial picture, in your portfolio? What questions do you have? Your, your questions, your comments are always number one on this show. So I encourage you to give us a call at 888-99-CHART. Anything money-related or golf-related, maybe, happy to talk about. Now, we're going to run down the market performance as well as some show topics, but right after we answer our first caller question now. Hey, this is James from Georgia. I was trying to call you guys about a ticker symbol, U-R-O-Y, uranium. It's a uranium corporation. I've got a little bit of position with this company. I really love this sector, but um, I don't know if my money should be here. Probably thinking about selling it. I have a little uranium ETF, but I'll ask you about that later. Thank you, guys. Have a great day. All right, looking at UROY, which is the Uranium Royalty Corp. And they're focused on getting exposure to uranium prices by making investments in uranium interest, including royalty streams, debt and equity investments, etc. within the uranium space. Now, right now, they have a whopping, I'm, I'm not a lot of revenue. I'm seeing, what, two quarters ago, they had about $14 million. I'm not seeing any revenue for last quarter. And it's a very small cap name, $282 million market cap. But in the, you know, I think of the royalty names, there are two within the precious metal space that uh, long-term have much better track records than a lot of the miners, uh, gold and silver miners. And that would be Franco Nevada and Wheaton Precious Metals. Those are two of... Uh, they're, they're different types of, they're not miners, they're royalty companies. And I think this what, what this company is trying to do is copy that model. And what these type of companies do is they invest, instead of actually operating the mines, they say, hey, we're going to provide the capital and we are going to get a stream of revenue based on the production of those mines. And sometimes their mine investments go really well, other times not so well. Um, but over time, that tends to be a pretty good 
a pretty good uh, business because they don't have to deal with the externalities and the uh, of the input costs of actually running a mine, labor and uh, energy, et cetera, and equipment. They just get a percentage of each basically pound of uranium or ounce of gold or whatever they're investing in that's com- that comes out of the mine. So this is kind of a new endeavor. It just came public in, what, early 2020? But it, it's rallied recently, but not as strong as the rest of the sector. It's actually underperformed. Like, I look at uh, a ratio of URNM, and it's certainly underperforming that uranium ETF. So, Luke... I like the business model, but it's just too early to invest in. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. I like the business model as well. I like the thinking of the caller. One, the big issue I have is that I can't find any information here. So I can't see where their properties are. I don't have anything on mining metrics. Their net margin is negative 30% this year. There's not even a projection for next year. I don't see any projections at all for earnings per share or sales next year as well. So for me, there's just, this is a new company. There's, not a lot of information that I can gather, and we have tools that have information on pretty much every company that exists. So yeah, if that's, that's the case, that I I would say stay away. You you can't fully know what you own with this company. Yeah, because they're, they're still, it looks like, in the process of investing in these mines. And maybe probably a lot of these mines are early in their in their development, and therefore they're not actually producing. So it's more of the hope that they produce. And... That's always up in the air. And then also, if uranium prices are going to go higher, you want them to capitalize on that right now. Uranium prices right now are the highest they've been in many years, and they're not able to actually capitalize on that because their mines that they've invested in are not producing, and thus they're not producing revenue. So I think you have better opportunities. Certainly a name to keep an eye on as they build their portfolio of uranium uh, mining uh, interests. I think that's something to to look at, but as of now, until then, I would I would be allocating my capital elsewhere in the uranium space. Even though I like uranium, we own a big uranium miner uh, ourselves for our clients, but this is not the name that you want to be holding right now. All right, we have a lot of ground to cover over the next forty minutes, and our main focus point is set up by this headline: A Redfin real estate report claims that twenty twenty three has been the least affordable home buying year in at least eleven years. California metro areas, as you would expect, were the least affordable, while the Midwest were the most affordable. So will prices ease as we go into 2024? So we're going to talk about the crisis in affordability or crisis in housing affordability uh, and the cost of living and how interest rates will impact home prices. We also have some other topics on the docket. One is in regards to the luxury market, which... As we talked about, Luke did a little re- retail therapy this morning, or this morning, uh, this weekend. I did uh, research. We research. Oh, you did more research. Got it. Okay. Yes. Uh, we're also going to talk about how, what, what signals the market is sending us from the interest rate market to the oil market uh, and the equity markets and which one is maybe off. So we're going to look at that. And then also Big Tobacco. Big Tobacco is trying to switch their revenue base from your typical cigarettes to something healthier. And we're going to look at the strategies that are happening in that world. All right. We also have some voice bank questions. One is in regards to 
selling based on a price target as well as target tr sorry tgt is the symbol and it's monday we're going to talk about we're going to go over our newest perspective which is on the u.s dollar dominance i also have some itunes review questions we will get to but let's talk about the market performance today we kicked off fed week luke with a positive day overall and new highs on the year for the S&P. Uh, are we getting a little ahead of ourselves before that announcement on Wednesday? Well, the market does like to get ahead of itself sometimes, but you are correct in saying that it was a broadly positive day. Big tech was lower, which makes sense given its recent rally. But overall, it just still appears to be a little overbought. The S&P is up 11% more than 11% since October 27th. Um, So I think all eyes are really just on the CPI print tomorrow morning and the Fed meeting later in the week. Yeah, that Fed meeting is going to be crucial because we've had a large pullback in rates. Financial conditions have eased pretty dramatically through the month of, of November. And obviously the Fed doesn't want that to happen too fast. You know, they while the inflation data continues to improve, if you get a a large easing in financial conditions, that could pro, that could reverse pretty quickly. Um, so, and you saw that with the jobs number. We had the jobs number on Friday that was a bit better than expected. And remember, that was the November number, and pretty much from the start of November all the way until the end you had financial conditions easing and that was on the back of interest rates going from we started the we started the month let's see the 10 year was clo- closed at around 4.86 and we closed the month at where were we 4.33 so that was a pretty big move the dollar also dropped and so it'll be interesting to see how not just what the fed announcement will be we know they're going to pause but what signal do they give the markets for the future of the rate path as we go into 2024. All right, as we go to a short break, let me remind you about our holiday giveaway contest. We're giving away free autographed copies of Steve's book, Above Average Investing for the Average Investor. It's a great beginner's guide to the investment world. So to enter the contest, all you have to do is subscribe to our YouTube channel as well as our Instagram account and like the holiday giveaway post and tag three friends in the comments. We'll choose one winner every day until December 31st. And the phone lines are open waiting for your questions at 888-99-CHART. Every investor is working to build a secure financial future. I will. Hey, hi, Steve. How they get there. I'm wondering if now is a good time to be buying preferred stocks. And when they get there. Would this be an opportune time? That depends on many variables. To get into annuities. Everyone's situation is different. And as I listened, I'm trying to turn more into an investor rather than a speculator. And so are their questions. Get your thoughts on CRM, Salesforce. I'm calling about Peloton. P-G-O-N is the shaker. I'd appreciate your take on medical properties trust. Hey, I'm trying to reach Justin, Luke, or Steve. Invest talk hosts Justin Klein. 15% of 
that capital to work in annuity and then look for opportunities to add more over time. Steve Beasley. Okay, so when you split, you'll still have about 5%, and my personal belief is you should just hold on to them. And now, Luke Guerrero. Figure out a way to diversify away that risk. That's always going to be beneficial. Are ready to provide their unbiased answers. All right, this is Boeing, a company that levered up its balance sheet to buy up tons of shares pre-pandemic. Each podcast is unique, and you set the agenda. Let me get your opinion on J.P. Morgan. InvestTalk is made better by the power of you. 888-99-CHART. This is InvestTalk. For serious investors, it's all about achieving financial freedom. That's why the unbiased guidance offered by Stephen Justin is so valuable. The InvestTalk Anytime listener lines are open now, and Stephen Justin welcome your questions. Call 888-99-CHART. Hello, InvestTalk. I'd like to get your guys' expert opinion on Target, ticker symbol TGT. would like to put it in my Roth IRA and um, kind of get a position. Just wanted to see what you guys think is the... From get the price to pick it up at. This will be a long-term hold. Thank you guys so much. All right, looking at Target, and this had been under pressure for most of the year. There were some political issues that uh, there was a, a Target boycott, uh, but I, I feel like that has calmed down since that fervor earlier in the year. Uh, and it looks like if you if you look at the economic data or the, the, the earnings data, uh, that improved in the third quarter. Revenues are only down four percent year over year as opposed to five percent from the previous quarter, and earnings were actually up thirty six percent year over year. And the stock reacted very positively. It moved from about one ten pre earnings announcement all the way to one thirty, and it's been steadily climbing up to one thirty six and change at the close today. So, Luke, is this a buying opportunity now that it seems that political, I so you call scandal? What, what would you call it? I guess that word would work. Okay. Do you think this is now the time to pick it up now, now that that's kind of abating? I think it certainly could be. I mean, their, their cash flow seems pretty good on the year. There's some improvements in their cash flow. Their profitability has been steady. They're projected to have... Uh, increased earnings over the next two years. It looks like the price is starting to rebound from that floor it held for just about two months or so after that that drop in price over the year. I think I think Target's looking better than it has in a long time. Yeah, and Morningstar doesn't have it give, have it with an economic moat, but I would kind of argue otherwise. I think they have a strong brand. Uh, I know a lot of a lot of women love going into Target and spending a bunch of money. I, I know that's a it's a common thread I see on uh, on social media. Um, and, you know, historically, they're a consistent producer, like you said, of cash flow and profits and return on equity right now around 31%. Their longer term average is closer to 33%. Their five-year median is 30%. So it's a very, very profitable business. And they have a good balance sheet. And if you think about the retail landscape, they're one of the best positioned against uh, Amazon and ability to you know, have an online presence, strong distribution, et cetera. So uh, it, I, I, if you're going to buy it, if you think long-term you, you want to own it, uh, I don't think it's expensive. I think it's probably fairly valued right now. So it's not cheap, but it's a very good business. So I would just buy it now. All right, we're going to a quick break. 
Please remember that you can call anytime and leave your questions on the Invest Talk Voice Bank. If you're listening via our live stream or on AM 1220 Radio in the Silicon Valley area, you can call right now at 888-99-CHART. Your objective is to work hard, plan well, and achieve financial freedom, right? You're in luck because Justin Klein is here now, ready to take your finance and investment questions. Call 888-99-CHART. All right, now our main focus point today is set up by this headline, a Redfin Real Estate Report claims that 2023 has been the least affordable home buying year in at least 11 years. Now, Luke, that's the that's how far back their data goes. So, uh, yeah, I'm sure there were less affordable years going back if you go back multiple decades. But obviously, this is a crisis in affordability for many people, and interest rates are impacting uh, the, the this afford, these affordability numbers, and. What it says is that the median income, if you were to, if you were a medium income person making seventy eight thousand six forty two, that's the median income, and you're buying a medium priced home around four hundred thousand, you were to spend forty percent of your income per month on housing, and that's up three percent from last year, and the highest on record going back to two thousand twelve. So there's not the pre-financial crisis data to look at, uh, but obviously mortgage rates are really driving this. If a typical home buyer has to earn at least $109,000, it's called $110,000, to spend only 30% of their income on a, a home payment. So, you know, I don't love these data p- points because home prices around the country vary pretty dramatically depending on what region you're speaking of, as well as incomes vary dramatically. Uh, the most affordable market is Detroit, but are people in Detroit really making, the median income of Detroit is probably far lower than the median income of the whole country, right? Yeah, I think that's a, a fair assessment. I also don't want to distract from the fact that although mortgage interest rates have had a big thing to do with keeping people in their homes, uh, therefore decreasing the supply, but also making entry into the housing market unaffordable for many, a lot of it also has to do with the supply in general. If you take a look at, and I know you've seen this chart, we saw it when we did a um, wealth webinar about real estate, and that's housing starts and housing construction still hasn't reached the levels of pre-2008. And so we have over a decade of probably related to a lot of zoning in some of these cities. I know in Los Angeles, a lot of it's related to zoning, but we have over a decade of not building as many homes as we need. And that seems to me to be the longer term driver of this current housing situation. Definitely. Definitely. That's, that, that's been a driver for a long period of time. I, I, I talk about this often, but you have to hammer the point again. And and it's this natural human reaction. And it's, when there is a major shock and it, it, it colors people, it colors their attitude. And we obviously had a major economic shock in 08 surrounding the housing market. And the average person, their attitude shifted about the economy, optimism about the economy, optimism about the housing market, as well as those that were involved in the housing market, 
home builders, for example. And to your point, Luke, so many home builders were very reticent to build a ton. They were, they kind of kept their inventory purposely light in order to avoid a situation where inventory balloons and they go bankrupt. And some of them did go bankrupt in 08. Others narrowly avoided it. And so that created that, that, that attitude that prevented a major boom in, in housing starts that would keep up with the housing demand. And so that's a big part of it here. Now, if you look at different metro areas, Austin, Texas was really the only metro area who saw home prices, home price affordability improve this year by 1%, a whopping 1%. So basically the drop in home prices made up for the increasing cost in financing. Major expensive metro areas like here in Southern and Northern California, those certainly uh, were were hit the hardest, uh, even though the Bay Area uh, price-wise did come down, but not enough to make up for the increasing cost of of, uh, borrowing. Like you said, Detroit was the most affordable. You only spend about 18% of your median income on housing costs there. Now, the good news here going into 2024, things are improving. Mortgage rates peaked around 8%, and now I'm seeing quotes back in the sixes, which is good to see again, uh, and that will certainly be helpful. Prices are likely to continue to decelerate next year, and I've said this many times, This is not a crash scenario. This is a long correction scenario where incomes are likely to march up. Still have inflation. People are still going to get raises. And that's going to help people buy homes each year. But the affordability is obviously still an issue as long as mortgage rates are above, say, 5%. And so it's going to be kind of a slow slog of prices modestly falling each year, probably for the next three to five years until you get back into some reasonable equilibrium. But uh, it's not a crash scenario. It's just a correction scenario. So say that. All right. Now the next invest talk, we'll look in the story behind this question. What should investors keep an eye on in the small cap realm? Increasing concentration reduces the benefit of diversification, increases a portfolio's exposure to idiosyncratic risks. And in November 2023 studies determined that the concentration that concentrated stock markets dominated by small small number of very successful firms are associated with less efficient capital allocation, sluggish IPOs, and innovative activity, as well as slower economic growth. So we're going to look at that story tomorrow. But for now, I'm Justin Klein with Luke Guerrero, and I'm ready to take your calls at 888-99-CHART. Let's say you've been thinking about learning a new language. Okay, why? I mean, how would it come in handy? And where would you want to use it? Could it be that you have an upcoming international trip? Or maybe you want to connect with family members or friends from a different culture? I think you should know about Rosetta Stone. With millions of users, it's been the world's most trusted language learning program for 30 years. Rosetta Stone is available on your desktop or as an app with audio companion and the ability to download lessons offline. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It has a built-in, patented speech recognition engine called True Accent. 
So as you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you pronounce words. With Rosetta Stone, you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. It's an intuitive process designed for long-term retention. You really learn to speak, listen, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone is an amazing value, so your special skill set is within easy reach. You know you want to do this, so don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, InvestTalk listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off now at rosettastone.com slash today. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's Attack Resistance Platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. Each day, InvestTalk listeners submit their finance and investment questions via phone or email. Would you like your question to be put near the top of the list? Just take a minute or two to leave a review and rating for InvestTalk at iTunes. And be sure to include a brief question with your iTunes review comments. Hi, Steve and Justin. This is Rick from Colorado. I was wondering how you set your target price to sell. Let's say you buy something at the bottom of a five-year PE range. Do you extrapolate that out to the top of its five-year PE range to sell, or do you pick something in the middle? Looking forward to hearing the answer on the show. Thanks. Ah, the infamous when to sell question. Here is, this is something that is probably for the average person the most difficult question. It's easy to buy something. And oftentimes you're buying something when it's moving up and, you know, the trend is your friend until it isn't. And eventually you get to where the stock is underperforming and most of the time people sell at poor times. They never sell when things are good. Um, and so 
that's that's usually the, the biggest mistake. And I'm not saying you're ever going to pick the top. Don't ever think you're going to pick the top. It's nearly impossible. But the first thing I always tell people is rebalancing is not a bad thing. Taking some profits off the table when things are doing well, that's more advantageous typically than freaking out and, and panicking while it's in a downturn. Um, but you should also have a, an idea of what you think fair value is. And when a stock gets too overvalued and the market gets too bullish on that particular sector, or that particular name, uh, that's typically a time where you want to be, be trimming. On top of that, macro for me. If the macro backdrop suddenly deteriorates for that particular sector as a whole, or just that company, then that is another reason to potentially sell. Um, so those are, to me, the, the main drivers. Valuation gets too stretched and the macro side deteriorates. Luke, any, anything to add there? Yeah, I think looking at one thing that I look at momentum is your friend. So over time, securities that tend to outperform tend to continue to do so in the short run and, and the vice, vice versa is true as well. So looking at how a security is or how a company is performing relative to its peers, how it's performing relative to the overall market, and constantly watching and constantly checking your portfolio and realizing that you don't necessarily have to sell it all at once. You can trim, you can take some profits. As long as the company is still performing on a business perspective, not on a price perspective, in a similar fashion as to why you bought it in the first place, there's no reason to just sell it all because it reached your price target. So like you said, the, one of the key things is to consistently be rebalancing your portfolio. Yeah, and I like what you said about its relative performance because that is one of the biggest tells that, that, uh, that I see of that this needs to be sold. Because a lot of times, the market's going up. And a rising tide lifts all boats, typically. And, but if you start to see your particular company starting to underperform, not just the S&P, but more it's, if it's a mid-cap stock, right, the mid-cap index, or maybe it's industry. So if it's industrial space, is it over underperforming XLI, for example? That can be a tell too to saying, okay, what's happening here? What is the market telling me? Why is this not going up as much as its peers within that particular slice of the market? And that can be another reason why you say, okay, I'm going to get rid of it now uh, and shift to something that is outperforming. So selling, just like anything, there's no one hard and fast rule. Uh, it can be for multiple reasons that stack up that say, okay, this money is now better suited elsewhere. Um, and, and, and obviously, if it goes in a downtrend and, and things are looking uh, dire, that's another reason to jump ship and move elsewhere. All right. Our perspective today looks at the U.S. dollar dominance. And we know that the dollar remains the world reserve currency, just as it has since the Bretton Woods Agreement back in 1944. Can you believe we're going on 80 years? Next year will be 80 years of Bretton Woods. But let's look back at the history. And this was agreement, the Bretton Woods, of 44 nations. And it brought about the creation of the IMF and the World Bank. 
And over the first half century, the U.S., we ran budget surpluses and we increased trade ties around the world. And we exported dollars. That was one of our biggest exports. And in some ways, they call it the the Dutch disease, dollar Dutch Dutch disease, where that's our our main export. And we're so reliant on that. Uh, And Luke, the dollar dominance peaked in 2000, right after the creation of the European Union. And then the world started to diversify. And today, the dollar reserve, dollar reserves around the world have fallen 13% from its peak. So the question for you, Luke, is, is this, is the dollar, what do they call it, de-dollarization, is that overused, over-embellished? Yeah, I think so. I think it was the natural order of things that 71% seemed a little high, especially when you had the formation of a economic union like the European Union. And people love to today point to what China is trying to do uh, with their currency to replace the dollar and hint that, oh, well, China's share of global trade is growing. But if you actually take a look at the numbers, what you saw over the past two years is the dollar's share of global trade increased slightly and the euro's share of global trade decreased. So in reality, all the share that's been eaten up by China is from sources that are not the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar is still by far the most dominant currency in global trade. And it seems to me like going forward, that's probably going to remain the case. And the European economy has been relatively weak over the last couple of years. They're highly dependent on exporting to China, for example, and their economy has been weak. They obviously have issues with the Ukraine war and the higher cost of, of energy. Um, and then they have demographic issues in general, where a lot of those countries uh, are are aging uh, pretty significantly. So it's not shocking to see that. We're here in the U.S. We still have a decent demographic. We still have immigration and, and, and people moving to this country uh, overall. And our economy has been stronger. So it's not a shock here. Now, between 1999 and 2019, 74% of all trade in Asia, in Asia, far away from the U.S., was invoiced in dollars. And in the Americas, 96% was invoiced in dollars. And almost 90% of foreign exchange transactions involved U.S. dollar, mainly because it's very, very liquid. So I I do think that there will be a long-term impact of de-dollarization, but it's going to be slow. And that's one... One thing I've learned throughout the years is there are always these kind of themes and talking points that uh, people latch onto. And most of the time, those themes are either overblown or the pace of that transition tends to be a lot slower than it is. It happens in the technology world. Right. How many people in the 80s thought we were probably going to be in flying cars by 2020? I was just thinking that. Right. So these things take a lot longer than, than expected. Uh, and I think the decline in the dollar will probably have more to do with our fiscal situation deteriorating more than countries around the world really changing the way they do business. Now, I think reserves will tr- will transition. I could see gold, and gold is already becoming a bigger part of reserves as opposed to simply U.S. dollars. 
Um, and I think that will continue. But when it comes to trade, the liquidity and ease of moving goods and transacting in dollars, I think is going to keep the dollar dominant for a long period of time. All right, now let's pivot and talk a bit about, actually going to go to a voice bank question that came in earlier at 888 chart Good afternoon, Steve and Justin, and thank you so much for all you do. You have helped me so much in developing my investment hobby into an actual practice. I recently decided to purchase the OTC stock VASO and classified it as very high risk but potential high reward. My thinking when I purchased it was even though it is an OTC, it's on the OTC, it has a very long track record as a profitable public company, so I'd wait for a potential spike due to the extreme volatility of penny stocks. On Thursday, after market closed, it was announced it is the target of an acquisition at a valuation of $176 million. On Friday, the price popped, but only to a market cap of about 30% of that valuation. I now feel like the dog that caught the car and I am out of my depth. Does the fact that it only went up 30% of the target price mean the market thinks there is only a 30% chance of this acquisition taking place? Or does it take more time for the market to digest the news and have it reflected in the stock price due to low volume and low visibility of the OTC companies. If that's the case, should I load up the truck on this stock if I believe in the company? Thanks again for all you guys do. Can't wait to hear your answer. Bye-bye. Well, this is a bit complicated because this is not just being bought out by any type of company. It's being bought out by a SPAC. So the SPAC is going to the, the sponsors of the company are going to get typically 20%. So I think that's part of the reason for the difference in the discount. I don't know. What's your take, Luke, here? So typically when you see merger activity and you see the deal terms, uh, the pop, if the market believes that it's going to go through, is instantaneous. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen piecemeal. So in this situation, it could be that there. It's related to the fact that it's a spec. It could just be that it's a penny stock. It's incredibly low in terms of liquidity. But I, I think that's that's the important part. There is yes, when you're buying a penny stock, you have the potential for large price movements. But the question, anytime you buy something, is will you be able to sell it? And if a stock is incredibly, or if a stock rather is not liquid at all, you're going to have a hard time selling out of your position because any trade at all, even if it's a small trade, is going to move the price because the spreads are really wide. So I think that's one of the dangers you have to be weary of whenever you invest in companies like this that are OTC or just incredibly uh, illiquid in general. Yeah. And you also have to remember, too, the structure of SPACs. The investors in the SPAC can opt out, right? They, that's why SPACs typically trade right around that $10 value for the life until they actually make the acquisition. And then the, act, the investors can say, no, I don't want to opt into this deal. And they're going to get their $10 back. So there's no risk there. And I think the discount you're actually seeing here is, first off, giving away basically 20% of that to the sponsors. And then the lack of 
visibility about whether this deal will go through or not. How many of the underlying SPAC investors will say, yeah, this is a smart investment. This is a smart way to deploy this capital. I don't know whether this will go through or not, but I think the market's telling you that there's not a great chance that it actually will go through uh, because of, like you said, the the fact that it's trading at such a large discount to its, uh, it's basically trading at half its offer value. So I would just take my money. If you're up, especially take your money, move on and don't invest in penny stocks. There you go. There you go. Well, our next focus point today is about something that Justin mentioned I have personal experience with, and that is that luxury stores are bursting with unsold items. And Justin, I, I don't know if our, if our listeners know this, and I know this because one of my former coworkers, his wife worked for a luxury retailer, but typically when some luxury stores have a lot of supply, a lot of inventory that they can't sell, do you know what they do with it? They burn it. <clears throat> they burn it. And so there's actually been a lot of pushback from not just the United States, but from the European Union regarding that practice. So now luxury retailers are trying to find ways to get rid of this inventory. Some are saying it's the worst market condition since 2008 and that there's 44% more inventory at the end of this than there was at the end of the, this quarter last year. So Justin, my question for you is, if people aren't buying luxury goods, which makes sense if some people foresee economic turmoil, what does that say for the margins of companies that have invested in a lot of inventory that they're now going to have to sit on? Well, margins obviously are, are go- going to be hurt here. And they're going to have to uh, offload this inventory somehow. They can't burn it. And... I think the issue is going to be the fact that they've kind of cracked down on huge discounts, both at department stores, allowing department stores to discount their products, as well as at their own boutiques. And there are also off-price outlets, and I think that could be the place for it. And I know you went to an outlet uh, mall this this weekend, um, and they typically are far away from major shopping centers. And... Therefore, you don't have that kind of competition. Um, and to me, this seems like the best place to do it, where people are already bargain hunting. They know that these prices are going to be discounted uh, to some degree, and therefore it doesn't hurt the brand because they know that these are the places that there, there will be discounts. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. I think it's, it's important to note that a lot of these companies aren't going to be able to move this inventory, and in a way they're having to shift towards... Uh, some methods like selling to private sellers. So you may be able to find really good discounts online. Definitely. All right, we're going to break. Give me a call at 888-99-CHART. Invest Talk is always made better when our listeners contribute their questions. So tell your friends and family members they can interact in real time with Steve Peasley and Justin Klein during the Invest Talk live stream program between 4 and 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Or they can leave their questions anytime 24 7 in the Invest Talk voice bank. 888 99 Chart. 
Hello, Steve, Justin, and Luke. This is Paolo from Gavisburg, Maryland. I have my next industrial name for you guys, ITT Inc., ticker symbol ITT. It's a mid-cap stock. Everything looks fine. The only thing, like, for my taste, it's a bit too expensive. I'd like to buy in cheaper. I'm curious to what you guys think about that one. And um, I'm always looking forward to listen to your answer and uh, your advice on the show because I love it so much. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye-bye. All right. Looking at ITT Inc. And this would be a mid-cap name, $9.3 billion market cap. And it's a conglomerate, diversified industrial conglomerate. They make brake pads, shock absorber, absorbers, pumps, valves, connectors, switches, and they primarily sell into automotive. So selling to car manufacturers, rail, oil and gas, aerospace and defense, chemical, mining, and just general industrial. So I like that it's nicely diversified. Their balance sheet looks clean, pretty much no debt, no net debt in its balance sheet. Not a huge dividend, 1% dividend yield, but its payout ratio is only 21%. So obviously that dividend can continue to go up. Return equity at 19%, longer-term average kind of in the mid-teens. So maybe it's slightly over-earning compared to its history. But look, I like it. Technicals are obviously very strong, maybe a bit too strong as of late. A bit overbought down a bit today, even though the market was up. So probably due for a bit of a pullback. But is it too expensive after this run? I wouldn't say it's too expensive. It's it's near its five-year average on price to earnings on a next 12-month basis and price to book value. Its margins are good. Its cash flow has been improving over the past year. Its profitability is improving over the past year, and its margins are stable. I, I like this company. I think this is, a, this is a good reason to maybe do some dollar cost averaging. Buy a little bit here, see what happens. Buy a little more tomorrow. Buy a little more next week. Uh, but you don't want to wait too long in a, and I'm not saying you shouldn't wait too long in this specific company, but for general advice, you don't want to wait too long because you might miss out sometimes. So if you find a good company that you like, uh, it's best to get in and then maybe buy a little more, but don't get in all at once. Yeah. And they've been buying back shares consistently, which I like, and their dividend has doubled over the past five years. 2018, their dividend was 13 cents per share, and now it's 29 cents per share per quarter. So, you know, it's a, it's a only a 1% dividend yield. And this is the exact type of name that I say, I much rather own this type of name than something that's yielding six, seven, 8% with a business that is just not that great. This is a consistent performer earnings in 2016 were 232 and they've increased their earnings every year, except for the COVID year, which understandably it, it dipped. Uh, and, and it's going to continue to do that this year, up 17% this year, 13% next year. Fairly valued, not super cheap, but fairly valued. And on a modest pullback, I think this is a good name to pick up. All right, lastly, let's touch a bit on the divergence in what the market is telling us. You have gold up, you have, you have oil down. And that is pretending to or sending a message that a modest recession is on the horizon. But equities from at our highest level of the year. So which one's right, Luke? It's of my opinion that a lot of the fear mongering in markets about demand over the next six to 12 months is overblown. That's what I think personally. Even with the excess inventory in the luxury goods market? 
even with the XSN, especially because the the crypto bros now get a 35% discount on Rolex watches. But I think the point here is that you can't just look at things that are traditional quote unquote indicators of where demand is going or where the economy is going. And you have to take a broad perspective about what's going on. Oil prices and gold alone are not going to tell you what's going on. The 10 year yield alone is not going to tell you what's going on. So dig deeper and formulate your own opinion. And also, there's differences between domestic growth as well as global growth. And obviously, oil and gold, that's a global market. And most people are focusing on domestic stocks, and that reflects more our domestic market. I'm Justin Klein with Luke Carrero, and that completes another Invest Talk program. We thank you for listening. We encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review on iTunes as well. Independent thinking shows success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, Call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART.